Hello and welcome to the Chaos Publishing Podcast, helping you make your mark in the tabletop gaming industry. My name is Miles Ratcliffe, games designer, co-founder and director of Chaos Publishing Limited. Today we invite Paul Grogan onto the show to discuss the importance of well-written rules in games. This is episode two, let's talk rules, gaming rules. Hey, so hopeful. welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on, Miles. Many of you out there may know Paul, you've seen him all over the place over Twitter, but Paul, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us what you do. Yeah, so my name's Paul Grogan. I've been into board games a very long time, probably 20 years or so now. But in the last five years, I've been turning it more and more from a hobby uh, and actually starting to do bits of work in the games industry, which started out initially as just helping out various games companies that I was a fan of by offering to help proofread their rule books and things like that. But then in the last 18 months, I've actually taken it more seriously. I've left full-time employment now, set up my own games company, well, games company, I set up my own company. And what I do is I offer services to games companies. So I do a lot of rules overview videos, which people might have seen online. Last year, I did games like Panamax, Kanban, Alchemists, things like that, some fairly, fairly big ones. So I do rules videos. I help companies with rule books, either writing them, editing them, proofreading them. I also do a lot of development work, play testing, things like that. And I'm at a lot of UK events doing demos as well for the companies just to get the word out there. So yeah, quite quite a lot keeps me very busy. Is there anything you're re- really proud of so far and what you've been able to accomplish? I think the videos. I mean, the videos take me an extraordinary length of time to do because I, I use digital animations. And quite often when I'm 40 or 50 hours into, into the video or it's 11 o'clock at night for the like sixth day running and I'm getting a bit fed up, when it's eventually finished and it's all edited together and it goes up on YouTube and I watch it back and I look at it Considering I've got no background in any kind of digital animations, video creation or anything like that, I'm quite proud of it. Quite pleased that I've gone from, you know, nothing with no formal training, no formal background in any graphic design or, or anything like that. Some of the videos that I've, I've done, I'm, I'm quite pleased with when I look back at them. Yeah, those are some amazing videos you've put together and really impressed with what you've been able to do with that. The reason as well why I wanted to get you on the show is because, well, you're really into rules. You've been explaining rules on the, all these videos and explaining rules at conventions, at events, by demoing games with companies like CGE. And you've really got into the habit of explaining it and making sure that it's as clear as possible. Uh, as, as well, as you do a little bit of rules editing and proofreading. So uh, could you tell us a little bit more what you think makes a good rule set? Well... Rule books are a very subjective thing. A lot of people uh, have different opinions about rule books. Some people think a particular rule book is really good, uh, and somebody else might think that that same rule book is particularly bad. Um, so, but there there are still good th- good rule books, and there are bad rule books out there. So, there doesn't seem to be one single standard template for how to write a rule book. Now, some people might disagree with that, because if you were to go onto the internet and search for how to write a good rule book, you will find a template. But not every rule book follows that template. So there are lots of different templates out there. But I think what makes a good rule book is one in which the reader can read it, learn how to play the game, which is an obvious one. But I think the important thing is that situations that will crop up during the game are in the rules. For me, when I'm reading rule books, and I, you know, I can read a rule book, get a new game, read through the rules and go, yeah, I understand that. 
You start playing and then a situation happens and you think, ah, hang on a minute. And then you go through the rule book and that situation is not explained in the rule book. So I think a good rule book not only teaches you how to play, but also covers all of the different eventualities that, that could happen in there. I mean, that's why as well you see afterwards, after it's been published, you see lots of facts appearing on the company's websites. FAQs, yeah. Yeah, and across Boarding Geek. It's all about just trying to just cover that in because a lot of the time through the process, it can be ru rushed in as well through the design process and things can be missed. So what do you think is the best way to make sure that all of that's covered? Well, I've got what iClass has the best way to prevent that happening and to make sure that your your rules do have most of, I mean you, you might not be able to cover every single situation oh in this game tile number 17 came out at exactly the same time as tile number 33 and there's a weird combo that we'd never come across you're never going to get every situation covered but you can get most of them I think that the only way to really prevent it is blind testing the rule book and the game at the end of the process so your game's finished it's about to go to print. You've got a couple of, you know, pre-production prototypes, whatever, you know, that are the final game. You've got what you think is the final rule book. You send it to a group of people and you say, there you go, go, go and play the game. And they will come across those situations, or they might do, but, you know, there's a, there's a chance they'll come across them. They'll ask questions, you add them to the rule book. The reality is, however, that with the deadlines and the schedule and the development and the printing and everything else, there's usually very little time to actually do that. I mean, all that's really beneficial to actually send it out to the groups because that's what's going to happen when you put the game on the shelves. People will be buying the game and trying to figure out how to play. So if it's not all that clear and uh, there are eventualities in there, which makes it confusing for the players, well, they're going to be confused, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's there's been some really good games that have come out, in, you know, in the last, well, forever, really, um, by really big publishers that have missed some really, really simple things. And sometimes it's forgivable. And sometimes you just think, well, how did they miss this? But now that I'm working in the industry and I'm involved in that process, I'm a lot more forgiving of them because I now see, you know, I see how much effort goes into things and I can sort of understand a bit more how those things get missed. As well as sending out to groups and getting that blind playtesting done, it's also important to make sure it's written in the right way. So getting a copy editor, have a good look through it and write it in the right way is really important. Yeah, and it's a similar thing with, um, you know, there's one sort of theory about game design and game development. That as a games designer yourself, you'll probably know a bit about this, is that your designer comes up with all these crazy, wacky ideas. Some of them will work, some of them won't work, but the designer can get attached to some of his ideas. And it's up to the developer, if that idea really doesn't work, you know, and he goes to all these different playtest groups and, and they all say this idea doesn't work, but the designer's so keen on it and he doesn't want to lose it, it's up to the developer to sort of, you know, persuade him, look, you really need to drop this because it's not working. Now, some designers are okay and, and they, you know, they will change the way that they think. But in a similar way, you've got the rulebook writer who writes the rulebook and goes, yeah, I've written the rulebook and I think, I think this is fine. They're the worst people for reading through it to make sure it is fine. Because I've written a rule I've written two rule books from scratch myself. And then I've sent it to a couple of close friends and said, Right, here, I've written the rules for this game, you know, the one that we played the other week. Have I missed anything out? And they point out, and I mean there was one of them that I wrote, and this was for my own game, 
and they said, right, you've described the auction process and you've described, you know, what happens when you pass and the fact that you can't come back in and all of that sort of stuff. But at no point did you say that the winner of the bid has to pay the winning bid to the bank. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's quite important in an auction game, isn't it? Um, and I would have missed that if it hadn't have gone to somebody else. Yeah, there are some things in rules which can seem quite obvious, but you really need to make sure it can be explained to people who aren't quite familiar with that mechanic. Yeah. Well, worker placement, for example, you know, we all know worker placement. We know how it works. So do you really need to explain how worker placement works in a rule book? Yes, you do. Because when somebody buys your game, that might be the first worker placement game they've ever bought. So you, you've got to describe it as if you don't know what these concepts are. As, as well as also games which haven't been published from designers who have written rule books, they add quite a lot of length to it. And it's not as concise and clear as it should be. So again, that's another reason why a copy editor is really helpful in making the rules really concise and clear to players. Yeah, you know, trimming down a three-paragraph section that could be explained in one paragraph is, you know, makes it easier, makes me makes it means you have less pages in the rule book as well. So it's always useful, as long as you don't strip out too much and end up missing out that, you know, that special exception that sometimes happens and forgetting it, forgetting to put it in the rule book. How do you think writing rule books varies between, well, different types of games, whether it be a very simple game or a very more complex, heavy game? How does it vary when you're writing the rule books? I think the approach has got to be got to be the same. I think with a simple game, it is easy to fall into the trap of, oh, this is a simple game, so the rule book doesn't need to be that long. Whereas actually, it needs to be, you know, it needs to have just as much detail in there for each of the specific th rules in the game as a complex game would but a complex game you might need to go into more detail with examples and i think examples in rule books are essential you know you describe the rule then you've got an example with a picture with some arrows pointing to it and you ah you understand it whereas if the rule is fairly simple you might not need the picture but yeah i think i think the approach is probably the same yeah, so do you have any examples of rule books you think do a really good job at explaining the rules? Um, well, naturally, I'm going to say Czech Games Edition, since I do a lot of work for them. But to be fair, I thought their rule books were possibly the best rule books out there before I started working for them. When I was when I was just a, a CG fanboy, one of the reasons why I became a fan of the company was because their rule books were were really well written. Now that I, I do work for them and I'm involved in that rulebook process, you know, their rulebooks aren't that good because of me. Their rulebooks were good before I, I got involved. But I now see the process that they go through in order to get their rulebooks the way that they do. And it's a very long process and it involves a lot of different people um, at, at every step of the way. Um, and having worked with other companies as well that don't have the same sort of process in there you know they might have one person reading it one person editing it and then one person proofreading it, it it's going to be uh you know it's going to it's going to be a different end result than if you've got lots and lots of different people involved in the in the process yeah there's all that communication aspects and making sure that everyone knows what they're doing and what troubles would you find would arise with that well Technology really, really has a big part to play in this. So I, I worked uh, on a rule book with, uh, let's say, Company X, and it was a Word document that got emailed around to each person who was supposed to be looking at it. 
and we were all supposed to add our comments in, turning track changes on, and then we'd email it to the next person, um, and then they'd put their comments in with track changes on, and then you'd get it back, and you'd have this massive document with different coloured words all over the place, and it was a total nightmare to actually, you know, work out what was going on. So that, that was one process. Now, what CG use, and I'm sure other people use this as well, is an online proofing piece of software, which is web-based and it's in real time. So when when we get a new rule book to, to look at or, or edit or, or anything like that, you know, we just go to this website and it's on there and everybody else who is looking at that rule book is looking at it at the same time. And it's all graphical. So you can highlight bits, you can draw arrows, you can say this image here just move it a little bit to the right and you can put little arrows and draw diagrams and little smiley faces, whatever you want. And it's all live. It's all in real time. So when we are reaching that crunch point of it's going to the printers in six hours, let's all have one last look at it. You're there and you're seeing all of these people in the document at the same time. So somebody spots a spelling mistake. It's great. You don't have six different people all spotting it, all commenting on it. One person spots it, highlights it, puts a note underneath it. And each note that they make is like a little separate discussion thread as well. So you can go on there and you can say, actually, I think it's better if you say this. And then when you're done with that, it all closes. And the guy who's doing the the, the, the typesetting and everything else, it's just all there for him. He just goes through it page by page. It's like, you know, you can now make comments on PDFs and you didn't used to be able to. So it's like that function, but it's for multiple people all at the same time in real time. And that that process, thanks to that technology is just amazing when when you use it and when i don't use it it's an absolute nightmare are there any other troubles you've experienced with rule books only um sort of different language versions um now a few years ago yeah i mean it always happens uh well not always but you know it, it happens sometimes that you go oh well, i was playing with the french version of these rules and and they're different from the english versions and a few years ago i, I was quite vocal about that saying that's terrible that should never happen you know, that, that's, that's ridiculous. How can such a stupid thing happen like that? Now that I've been involved with the process with a number of companies, I can see how it does happen. I think it's still something that should be prevented, but I've now got a little bit more understanding. I'm a little bit more forgiving when it, when it does happen. And it's very difficult to do that. I mean, ideally, you will have a finished rule book in one language, absolutely 100% finished, before it goes off and gets translated. That's an ideal world. But what happens is... You've got your finished rule book. It's gone off to the French translators, the Spanish translators, the, you know, the uh, Afghanistanian translators, whatever. And then the guy who designed it plays it one weekend with his friends. Somebody does something that's broken and, oh, he needs to make a change. All of a sudden, you've got this absolute nightmare of contact, of not only redoing the rule book, even if it's just a small change, but you've changed, you know, the master English version or German version or whatever it is. But you've then got to contact all of your partners, all of their translators that might have hired in some external person to, to redo it and translate it. And that bit's got to be done again. And, you know, all of that process, when you're rushing to get a game done in time, that can be one thing that leads to you know, different language versions actually having different rules in them. That's one of the reasons. There's, there's quite a few more, as you, you've probably come across yourself. You've actually had our own experiences when we were producing Medieval Mastery and getting the rules translated into a number of languages, uh, particularly the German and the French, which we're looking for professional translators. 
uh, the rules were pretty much all solid, all in place, and we were really reaching out to gamers on BoardGameGeek to help us and offer their support to get those rules in place. Because that's the thing. I mean, you know, if, if I design a game and I write the English rule book, and then I find, you know, a French gamer who's happy to translate it, because I would always want not just a translator, I would want a gamer as well. So they translate into French, they send it me back. I haven't got a clue whether it's right or not. You know, he, he could have written Paul Grogan is an idiot for all I know. And, he, <laughs> you know, I'd have no chance of checking it. Yeah, so that's the trouble as well when you're kind of relying on that. So it's also important when you are working with other languages to uh, get people to help you through that. So when we did get the translations in, we asked plenty of people around in the forums on BoardGameGeek to proofread it in those right. different languages. That's cool. I'm a big believer in putting rules online, Board Game Geek or otherwise, before they go to print. And I know some companies don't want to do that, but I think the amount of help that you will get, free proofreading, effectively, um, you know, fans want to see it. I, I, I would always want to see a rule book and read a rule book before I, before I buy a game. Um, so, you know, there's that. But also, yeah, the amount of people that you will get contributing to it and helping it, especially if it's a Kickstarter game. If you... If you're kickstarting a game, people aren't just, you know, uh, backing the campaign in order to just buy your product. Usually it's because they're investing in you and they, they're showing an interest in it. And more more often than not, these they, I think they would they would gladly help you proofread your rule. Look at what Matt Leacock's doing with the new Thunderbirds Kickstarter. Um, I think the uh, the actual rule book is being written by by the backers. Well, I think Matt's writing it, but you know he's getting a lot of help and advice and comments. So it's kind of a, an organically growing rulebook based on based on people that are backing the, the, the project. Yeah, it's a whole community effort, and it's really essential just to get, get that feedback, whether you, you're a starting out designer trying to just get your rules ready for its first blind play test or just for its first play test even, uh, to, to the later stage where you are actually self-publishing it as a Kickstarter and you're working with your community there just to really refine your rules a bit more to... Yeah being a publisher or working with a publisher uh, to get the games ready for production and to print. Yeah, that's something I'd always I'd always want to do myself. But obviously some companies, you know, are able to still produce fantastically written rule books without that kind of assistance from, you know, the general general public. So, um, but yeah, they, they generally put a lot more work into them to, to make them good. Are there any other particular examples which you'd like to highlight to our listeners to search out and they can learn from uh, read the rules of them because you mentioned about the CG rule books but are there any others yeah um it, it's, it's one of my other clients i'm afraid but again <laughs> this is what's your game i was a massive fan of what's your game again and when i when i set up my own company it was me that approached them and said look i'm a massive fan of yours because i love your games i love your production values i love your graphic design and i think your rule books are some of the best out there i am a massive fan of your company is there any chance that I could do some work for you? And, th and they said yes. So yes, th their rule books are, in my opinion, extremely good. For those people that, that don't know, Watch Your Game make fairly heavy and complex games. And their rule books have sometimes come in for a little bit of criticism as like, oh, the rule book was a nightmare because the game was very difficult to learn. Yeah, the game's very difficult to learn because it's a really heavy game. The rule book is actually, you know, in my opinion, quite, quite well done. So yeah, that, that's the other thing as well. Sometimes rule books get a lot of criticism when actually they're really good, but the game's quite hard to learn. 
Okay, to sum up, what are the key points you'd say are important when writing a rule book? Get it checked by as many people as possible, unless you're, you know, very good at if you if you've got an internal process that works okay and you've done loads of rule books and they're all fine, keep going with it. But otherwise get as much help externally as you can. Anything else? The blind playtesting that we talked about earlier on, if you're able to do that, there's no there's no better test than sending your game with the rule book to a group of people and saying, There you go learn how to play and play it from that rule book. And if they can't, you've got something wrong with your rule book that you need to fix. It's much the case as well, reading through various different rule books and seeing what people have done right and done wrong. So you've got your collection of games and you can look through them. What rules do you understand? What rules don't you understand? And as well, get other people's feedback. There's a great community on Walking Geek and well, every, everywhere, the whole gaming community uh, talking about rules and game. All the reviewers as well, they uh, take a deep look into the rules and say, no, this isn't very clear, and, yeah. and talk about how, how it could be improved. Just, so I would say take, take all that information in and really work on refining it, and so get a lot of people to see it, because there are a lot of mistakes which you won't see. You've written the rule book, you can proofread it yourself about 10 different times, and you're not going to spot that one mistake. Yeah. I think the other thing as well is that, you know, in, in I think publishers have a responsibility not only to get their rule books correct as much as they can right at the start, but if there's something wrong, they need to publish a ratter on their website, but they need to have a presence on Board Game Geek, they need to be helping answering rules queries and, and, and things like that. And a lot of companies do. I mean, you look at fi uh, Fantasy Flight Games, you know, most of their games do end up with FAQ, either because there's some something slightly wrong in the rule book or as we mentioned earlier on some some combo of things that that wasn't covered in the rules but they publish the FAQ they're all nice they support people you know they take all the questions they've got the customer services email and other companies have no presence on board game geek don't have their errata or FAQ on their website and it, it's down to some fan that's put it together based on a consensus of what people think and i just think well yeah, no, that 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 does that doesn't sit comfortably with me. I like I like the publishers that are not just there for the short term to sell you the game, but actually to support you in in playing that game in future. Yeah, every time someone posts in the forums on one of our games pages, I chime in straight away, answer any questions which they have as well. As one recently, which was asking about rules variants and had some ideas for it and wanted to post them on Board Game Geek, and I mean that's always great great to see as well when I'm seeing it on the other games pages. So if our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they do that for? I'm contactable through a variety of means. I'm on Twitter at Gaming Rules Vids, Facebook at Gaming Rules Videos. I've got a website now, which is www.gaming-rules.com. And there's a contact form on there. I'm on Board Game Geek under the, um, the, the clever title of Paul Grogan, just so nobody really knows it's me. Yeah, lots of different ways to get hold of me. Yeah, see, this guy's everywhere, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, I try to try to be in as many places as I can. Yeah, are there any projects which are happening at the moment which you've been involved in? Yeah, at the moment I'm involved in lots, lots and lots of different projects, trying to get as much cleared as I can before the run-up to Essen, because I'll obviously be involved in, in lots there. But at the moment I'm working on the video for the gallerist, so the, the rules overview video for the gallerist, which is Vital Lacerda's new game. So I should have that finished in a couple of weeks. And I've got all my regular work that I'm doing for CGE, helping them develop uh, and I'm involved in all of the testing and development work for their new games as well. So, yeah, quite a lot. All right. Thanks, Paul. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks very much for having me on. 
If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like us to cover in future episodes, guess you would like to be on the show, or if you would like to be on the show yourself, please do not hesitate to email me at miles at chaospublishing.com. You can also find us on Twitter at chaospublishing or on facebook.com forward slash chaospublishingltd. On another note, as a games publisher, we are currently on the lookout for new games to publish. If you are a games designer and have a game that you would like to see on the shelves, please review our submissions policy at chaospublishing.com and send us an email. I'll then give it a look over and provide you with my honest feedback. Thank you for listening to the Chaos Publishing Podcast. My name is Miles Ratcliffe, and I hope to catch you again on the next episode. <laughs>